They really love this story because it's relatable to all of us. You're going to enjoy it. You, you're going to recognize it. But I want, I want to dig deep into the humanity of the disciples today, the reality of every single one of them. I, I could use any name people in the Bible and see how much of human they were and how much of a failure from an earthly perspective they seemed to be. But if you look at the 12 disciples, even what we talked about last week, that they all, at, when Jesus was arrested, the moment they arrested, what they do? They scattered. And uh, every single one of them was a failure. And yet, if you read the book of Acts, it, the funny thing about the book of Acts, they seem like a different group of people because they're bold. That's what the Holy Spirit will do when he fills you. He will make you bold, and you don't change who you are. I mean, the Apostle Paul was always pretty intense. He was a, a Pharisee, but he turned into the greatest church planter, but he was always Paul. You're not going to become somebody else just because you're filled with the Spirit. But I mean is that you're going to start acting like Jesus, but you're always going to have your, you're going to have who God created you to be. And so don't pretend to be someone else. But I love this because we have quite the journey to read today. We're going to be finishing Mark 14 if you have your Bible. Mark 14, and to be honest with you, we've got only like maybe three or four weeks to go in this series, and uh, wow, what a journey, and this is a journey today because it's a sobering text. It's one of the most sobering texts. In fact, I saw a movie, and I've, seen, I've said this before from this pulpit, is that there's one time in any movie that I've ever cried and teared up was was the scene that we're going to be reading from today. And it was the Jesus, it's just the Jesus film that was put out in the 70s that millions of people have watched over the, around the world. And it was this very scene, and it really had nothing to do with Jesus, which is weird because I should cry because of how they treated Jesus and spit upon him. But it was about the apostle Peter. It was about this hum human who gave up on himself, and yet... Jesus never, ever, ever gave up on him. And so I love that. And so it's not about if you fail, it's how you're going to respond when you fail. It's not about if you fail, it's how God responds to your failure. There's two questions we need to wrestle with. How do you respond the moment that you fail? The moment that you let God down? Which if you're human and you have a story, you can say right now, Pastor, I could give you the story about when I failed myself, I failed my family, I, I failed my spouse, I failed my kids, I failed my job, I failed uh, uh, God, I failed the church. You could, you could preach up here about your story, and it's not about the fact if it happens or not, it's about how you're going to respond to that, because we see Jesus, we see Peter, and we see Jesus. One person responds to his failure in one way. The other person responds to the failure in a completely different way. And so I want to remind you before we jump into the text here, what took place right before this text. We're literally taking over at the next verse. And so what happened was Jesus is in the garden and he is sweating drops of blood. That was last week. And at the very moment that his disciples are asleep, he says to them, fine, you can sleep. You're going to need your rest. It's going to be pretty busy the next couple of days. And then at that moment, he's saying, there's a mob of people. Remember that from last week? There's a mob coming, led by one of his good friends, Judas Iscariot. And he goes up to Jesus, and he calls him. Does anybody remember what he calls him? Rabbi. Everybody say rabbi. Another teacher, I've learned from you. I've grown. 
I love you. And he goes up to him, kisses him. And that's when they grab him. And that's literally where we, it was like to be continued. And this is like part two of our, of this mini series within a series. And that's where we get into the story of Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 53. And it's quite the journey. So hang on, buckle up if you have to, because this is a crazy story. It is sobering. It makes me feel very emotional sense because, um, we can all relate to Peter's story in one way or another. Whether you've said, I've, I deny Christ, whether you said so physically or just by the way that we live, oftentimes we deny that he even exists. Um, it's what I've heard, practical atheism. We, we believe in God except for the way that we live. So it says, they took Jesus, this is the mob, they grabbed Jesus after Judas kissed him, they took Jesus to the high priest's home where the leading priests, the elders, and the teachers of religious law had gathered. Here's a, here's a Bible quiz story. For if you've been paying attention the last few weeks, what have those religious people been trying to do to Jesus for three years? They've been trying to kill him. They've been trying to find the perfect time to grab him, to not even, not even arrest him, just kill him. And so, but now they have to go through a mock trial. I'm going to call it a kangaroo court. You may have never heard that term, but it's a fake court. It's just, it's one of those things that it's just a show. It's just showing this is what, and they already know the outcome before they even do the, the court. That would never happen today, but we'll just say it right here. It says, the teacher of religious law, they had gathered. Meanwhile, at the exact same time this is happening, that's what meanwhile means, okay? Peter followed him, Jesus, at a distance. Don't you think about that? He's following Jesus from a distance. In, in enough that you can hear him, you can see him, you can smell his sweat. I was going to say cologne, but he didn't have cologne. But you could smell his sweat. You can smell his, you can smell all that stuff that's going on. You can hear it. You can see it. You could, you could, you could hear everything that's going on, but you're at a distance. Okay. And he went right into the high priest's courtyard. Okay. So where is Jesus? Jesus at the high priest's house. Where's Peter? Right below, there's a little hillside. There's a courtyard where everybody can gather. And that's where he's at. He's in the courtyard. There, he sat with the guards, warming himself by the fire. Oh, isn't that nice? We all think about someone relaxing in front of a fire. He's warming himself. Why? I want to, This is not what, why he's doing it specifically, but I want to illustrate this by saying that he's way, more com- he's way more concerned about his comfort than how Jesus is doing right that moment. Jesus is not comfortable. But for sure, Peter's sitting there warming his hands by the fire. If there were s'mores, he probably would make, be making s'mores right there. Okay? Inside, okay, meanwhile, the leading priests and the entire high council were trying to find evidence against Jesus. Notice that they're trying to find evidence. They'll pull it out everywhere. I got, I got a big, big bag of, of, let's see, let's see, Jesus, yeah, he did this. No, no, that, don't, that doesn't work. Now, Jesus did that. They're throwing everything against the wall to see which one will stick so they could put him to death, but they couldn't find any. Many false witnesses spoke against Jesus, but they contradicted each other. Finally, some men stood up and gave this false testimony. What kind of testimony? False. The trial should be thrown out, okay? We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days, I will build another made without human hands. You said, I thought he said that. He did say that, but he wasn't even talking about the physical temple. He was talking about his body. I think that's what John had kind of even put in parentheses. 
Like in case you're reading the story and you're like, oh, that's what he's talking about. Okay, okay. But in three days, I'm going to build another made with human hands. Then it goes on. But even then, they didn't get their story straight. Then the high priest stood up before others, and he asked Jesus a question. Well, aren't you going to answer these charges? What do you have to say for yourself? But Jesus was silent and made no reply. What was he? Silent. No answer. Now, I, I want to take a little side note here. How many of us, when someone accuses you of something that's not true, or they say something bad about you, you have a hard time keeping your mouth shut? You better believe it. Who has to have the last word? In our family, we have a hard time trying to get the last word. Because how can you just keep going to get the last word? It never ends, right? So how in the world did Jesus just go? Because of, well, he understood the will of God. He understood the plan of God. God's plan trumps right. He was right to defend himself. He had every he had every right to defend himself. But do you think that's going to change anything? No. He made no reply. Then the high priest asked the second question. And let's, there's no, there's no change here. It's just all of a sudden it's like, let's, here's the real question. Are you the Messiah? Just be plain. Be clear. Are you the son of the blessed one? Jesus said, I am. Everybody say, I am. That's not just saying, some translations say, I am he. That's not what the text says originally. The text uses the word, I am. The exact same term that God used to Moses when Moses said, who am I supposed to tell that's sending me? Remember that? Tell him, I am. It's horrible grammar, but that's what God said to say. The exact same term Jesus uses. So those people that want to say, Jesus never claimed to be God in the scriptures, only in the book of John. Here's one right here, plain and clear, and black and white, and sometimes red, because it's Jesus' words. I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothing to show the, his horror, that's what they did when they wanted to prove that they're very upset. And he said, why do we need other witnesses? You have all heard his blasphemy. What is your verdict? Guilty, they all cried. He deserves to die. This is where, I want you to imagine, this is, this is going to help you and me to really fall in love with this Jesus. Because look at what he went through. This is, he's not even on the cross yet. Then some of them began to spit at him. They blindfolded him and beat him with their fists. Prophesy to us, they jeered. And the guards slapped him as they took him away. Mock him. You're not worth anything. Look, I'm more powerful than you, Jesus. I'm going to prove it by not only punching you, but as you are taken away, I'm going to slap you across the face. What a disgrace. See, if I'm watching, if I'm, if I'm watching this movie and I've never seen it before, See, we ruin it by already knowing what happens here. And we know the plan of God. But I want you to watch. This is, okay, it's over. The end. His story's over. Jesus, you're not who you said you were. You said you were the Messiah. The Messiah would never, ever, ever let that happen. They never read the Old Testament. The suffering servant of God, according to the Old Testament. 
They never read it. Or if they were, they were just kind of like, they, they, they slept through that class. They slept through that sermon, right? Prophesied to us, and they took them away. Meanwhile, okay, he's using, Mark is using that term very specifically. And meanwhile, at the very same time that he's getting punched, he's getting beat, he's getting slapped, Peter was in the courtyard below. We already know that. He was already there, but Peter's reminded us yet again these two parallel stories happened at the same time. One of the servant girls who worked for the high priest came by and noticed Peter warming himself at the fire. Pause. Most scholars say that she's anywhere from like 8 to 12 years old. I don't know how old she is, but she's not older than that. Okay, so she's just a little kid. Okay? And she think about if I'm going, if I'm at, if I'm at the grocery store and some little kid goes, like one of, one of her kids goes, hi, you're Mrs. Bremer's husband, aren't you? Don't know who you're talking about. Having a clue. No, I usually go, of course I am. Hi, you know, that kind of thing. But Peter denies it. You, you, you know, she looked at him close, you know, the high priest came by, noticed Peter warming himself by the fire. She looked at him closely and said, you were one of those with Jesus in Nazareth. But Peter, what? Denied it. I don't know what you're talking about. As his eyes are probably up here going, you know, that's, if I can't tell the truth, I'm never going to look you in the eye, trust me, because I have a tell if I'm lying. It's a dimple that pops out right here, right? If I'm pretending, I'm saying, hey, yeah, I'm doing good. She goes, you're lying. God gave me that tell for a reason, by the way. I'm so glad for it. But he goes, I don't know what you're talking about. He said, and as he went out the entryway just then, a rooster crowed. When the servant girl saw him standing there, she began telling the other people, this man is definitely one of them. But Peter denied it again. And then a little later, some of the other bystanders come in front of Peter and said, you must be one of them because you were Galilean. How'd they know that? His accent. Like, hey, you're from Boston because you're going to pack your car with your cockies and all that kind of stuff and Boston, Boston Yard and Harvard. We know if you're from Boston... If you have that accent, my grandma's husband who passed away when I, I knew him when I was in high school, he was from Maine. And there is no doubt that Larry was from Maine because his accent was so strong. It was awesome. I didn't have an accent, but according to him, I had an accent. But they recognized Peter because he spoke their language, the Galilean language. Peter swore a curse on me if I'm lying. Uh-oh. Now, pause for just a moment, just at that line right there. God's grace is a lot stronger than our stupidity. Because if God took that literally, he would have no hope. I'm not saying it was okay for him to do that, but even then, Jesus did not go, you're right, I'm going to throw a curse on you right now. He, a curse on me. If I'm lying, I don't know this man you're talking about. Is he lying? So he's so adamant about not telling this girl that he goes, I'm, I'm going to, I swear, I swear, I swear to God. And immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Suddenly Jesus' words flashed through Peter's mind. I'm sure it did. Remember, if someone told you one time, maybe your parents, if you go with so-and-so, this is what's going to happen. Then you go with so-and-so and... -so and they're stupid. 
Because my parents always said, if you're going to hang out with people, don't hang out with stupid people because then you'll become stupid. You're going to do stupid stuff. And then the moment I did, they said, see, didn't I tell you? And then the words of my mom came back to haunt me. Man, she was right. But Jesus' words flashed through his mind. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times that you even know me. And he broke down and wept. I have no idea why that part of that movie makes me cry. I have no idea. But the fact that Jesus died on the cross, I'm like, thank you, Lord, but it didn't make me cry. I don't, I don't know what that says about me. But I think what it means is I look at Peter's life and I go, now, I hope I've never literally done that, but have I or have humanity, have the, has the church, have we denied Christ, not maybe like this? Have we denied him by our lifestyle? Maybe that's why I cried because I went, man, because I can, I can, if you can, if you read that, you can just lean your ear and you can hear his heartbreaking. You can. Because right there, first he gave up on Jesus. But I like to say that at least, this is weird, but at least he's, he, he, uh, he, he kind of tiptoed his way to Jesus to hear he's, he's close but then he's given up on himself. And that's why this is the saddest thing, in my opinion, outside of Judas Iscariot doing all that kind of stuff. But now, before we go any further, I want to throw out this. I'm a sports fan. I've kind of given my hat, my Mariner hat's in the closet because they, they, they're losing games right this second that they should be winning. And now the Astros are two games ahead. But anyway, there is a fact in Baseball world, football, basketball. I'm even a little hockey fan, just a little, not a lot, because there's a Seattle team now, the Seattle Kraken. And there is a fact that most sports fans, not all, but most fans attach themselves to winning teams. Example, when I was, when I was in high school, there was a wonderful NBA team that was in the 90s. How, what was the best NBA team in the 90s if you're an NBA fan? Who was the best team in the 90s? The Chicago Bulls. Wow, you knew that. You were kind of, did you doubt it a little bit? No, you knew it. And who was the best player on the team? Scottie Pippen. No, yes, Michael Jordan, right? Anybody heard of Michael Jordan? Okay. I think, I could be wrong. My brother will have to tell me this later. I think that my brother bought a Michael Jordan jersey during this time, even though we're Sonics fans that don't exist. But anyway, the... Many, 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 many people that I knew in school all of a sudden in the 90s became Chicago Bulls fans. Why? Because people attach themselves to perceived winners. If someone is victorious all the time, you're going to be with them. But the moment that they start losing, because we, we detach ourselves, we detach ourselves from perceived failures, losers. In fact, I may be wrong here, but in the 90s, I was a Seahawks fan. But there was not a lot of reason to be a Seahawks fan in the 90s because they were arguably the worst NFL team in the 90s. And, yeah, you could see pictures of the kingdom in the 90s, and they were full. But they were talking in 1995, 96 about moving the Seahawks because they were so bad to L.A., the L.A. Seahawks. That never happened because now they're the best team in the NFL, but, but beside the point. But the reason why... Is, and I'll, I'll, give you an, I'll give you an example of how this works for me. It worked for me when I was a kid. I loved sports growing up. And when my team wins, 
and especially when they won the Super Bowl, what do I say? We won, right? Have you ever, if your team wins, do you ever say we won as if you're the quarterback, as if you're the one that ran the ball in? No, you sat on the couch and had chips over at their house during the Super Bowl, and she was there because you're a Denver fan, but sorry, we're still, that's over 10 years ago. But you better believe I'm still living in the glory days. We won. Joel, you won nothing. The team that you root for wins. But the moment my team loses, like the Mariners yesterday, man, they lost. Do you see I'm detaching myself from that? It happens in the sports world. It does. It happened with me. The moment your team wins, we won. I'm part of the team. I'm the 12th man. That's what Seattle says. And Texas A&M, we stole it from them, but whatever. We're the 12th man. But once my team loses, I bet you the next year when the Seahawks lost in the Super Bowl, God forbid I bring it back up, I said, Russell Wilson lost that game. Pete Carroll lost that game. I didn't lose anything. Why? Here's the, here's, here's the, the principle of the whole thing. We attach ourselves and follow perceived winners we detach ourselves from perceived losers, failures. We don't, I mean, people, marriages, if a marriage is falling apart or hard to be married, we, we detach ourselves from them. I'm not putting my effort into that relationship or that church or with that pastor or with that job or with myself or with this or that or this sports team. We detach ourselves. We don't want to be associated with losers, with failures. That brings us back to Peter's account and his failure, and by the way, what looked like Jesus' failure. There's two failures going on right here. You're like, Jesus never failed. From a human perspective, you better believe he failed. Because nobody, nobody imagined that the Messiah would be killed. Nobody. They completely missed it. Jesus' death meant the end. For all of them. And so, see, I want you to think about Mark writing to the followers of Jesus at that 2,000 years ago. Who's he writing to? He's writing to a group of people who, at the time, it was not easy to be a Christian. Do you, do you know how easy it is to be a Christian these days? Some people, they know it's not easy. Well, they may marginalize you and say, oh, you're one of those religious people. But in those days, for being a believer, at least in my country, this doesn't happen yet. When you're a Christian, you get killed. That happens in some countries still. You get kicked out of your family because you're not Muslim. You're not, you get kicked out and then at best, you're just put in the side saying, you're not part of my family anymore. But at worst, you get killed. But in those days when Mark's writing this, it's during the time of Caesar Nero. And during the Caesar Nero days, Christians were mocked, shamed, blamed, and killed. In fact, in 64 AD, remember 70 AD was when they tore down the, the temple and burned Jerusalem to the ground? A couple years before that, Nero was so evil that he burned down Rome, his own place, so he can blame the Christians. He put them in front and said, see that? See that building that used to be there? Remember, See that right there? These Christians did it. Let's kill them. So they killed them. They skinned them alive. They threw them to the lions. They threw them everywhere that they possibly could to kill them. And most of the disciples, except for John, they killed them. 
Now, many Christians at the time were tempted to walk away because it got very difficult. Being a Christian, you signed your own death warrant. But Mark's writing his gospel with Peter's help, which I find ironic because Peter this time used his name. He's like, I'll talk about my failure. I'm not going to talk about the fact that I cut that guy's ear off. Forget it. Remember that from last week? I'm not going to talk about that one. But I want you to think about this very end of Mark. We've been in this... We've been in the series for like 20 years. And I want you to think about for the very first 13 chapters, what did I say when I first started this series? I said, this book is very action-packed. Okay? You don't stop and get the details. You're driving by at, you know, you're going through Las Vegas, on the side of Las Vegas, going 200 miles an hour, and you say, I want you to look for that one building. You see, okay, well, that's it, and you're gone. That's how he does. And then chapter 14 changes the writing way, the writing style, the, the, the story. Mark puts on the brakes for a little bit. In fact, there's a lot. 14 has been long. The reason why? Because Peter wants us to, Peter, Peter and Mark wants us to focus on what really matters. And that's what Jesus accomplished on the cross. What he accomplished when he was getting beat what he accomplished when he was getting punched. What he accomplished when they were spitting at him, mocking him. He did it so you don't have to. That's what he wants to focus on. He slowed down and he wants us to slow down. And he wants to focus on Jesus' last days. And what you see is that he's, been, he's lost control from a human perspective. He's been betrayed. He, it says in verse 50 of, of chapter uh, 14, it says, all his disciples scattered. All of them. That's shocking. That's shocking. I don't think the rest of them wanted to admit that. The Apostle John for sure didn't want to admit that. That's for sure. But they all scattered. And then it zooms in on one of them specifically, Peter. Which if you're a Christian, you know who Peter is. If you're Catholic... You for sure know who Peter is. According to them, he's the first pope. He's that important. He is important to the story. The book of Acts, man, who's the one that stands up and preaches to the crowd where 3,000 people get saved? Peter. That's how I know that having the Holy Spirit is, is necessary. Being filled with the Spirit and being anointed with the Spirit is necessary because without him, we're nothing. With the Spirit, we can be bold in our faith but without, we can be like Peter, and I can be like Peter, and be a guppy. Because that's what he really is. Now, Peter, he's within earshot. And he can't even admit that he's an associate of Jesus. Now, in the story about Jesus, we see that he's the judge. Jesus is the judge of all people. He's standing in front of this sinful crowd, judging him. And he could do nothing. He can say nothing. Because why? Because he knows, the, he knows what the plan of God really is. He knows that he has to go through some hard times to accomplish the will of God in his life. If he says anything, if he tries to get out of it, the moment he's on the cross, they say, get down from there, and then we'll believe. He could have probably done that, 
But he never would accomplish God's will if he would have tried to intervene on God's behalf, God the Father's behalf. So in the story, there's two stories happening. Number one, Jesus is standing strong in his convictions with this mock trial, this kangaroo court, and it's only going to get worse from here. That's the first story. I want you to think about that. There's two stories happening here. Jesus is standing strong in his convictions. What's his convictions? My father's will needs to be done, not mine. Thy will be done, not mine. The second story is happening at the exact same time is Peter not standing strong in his convictions. He's weak. He fails himself. He fails the disciples. He fails Jesus. He's failed him when Jesus needed him the most. And this is where it gets to my main point here. Because a disciple follows Jesus even when they have failed. I've, I've seen, I've, I've, I know people who the moment they have failure, they walk away. Now, let me side note. There are people that do moral failure, leaders, and they step down for good reason, okay? There's time where they need to be with the Lord, and they need to be reinstated. They need to be, God needs to work with, work in them and through them. I'll give you that. But right now I'm talking about the average person who you know the will of God for your life, but you've been kind of following Jesus at a distance because you don't want him, he might ask a little bit too much from you. It's too difficult. So you've been following Jesus at best from a distance. I can see him. I can hear him. But I don't want to have that intimate relationship with God that he desires. And that is, and, and, and I want you to think about it. It's not if you failed, it's when you fail, how are you going to respond to it? See, a disciple, they will fail from time to time. Why? Because you're human. If You're not God. You're not Superman. How, how many of us are strong all the time? I mean, every, I mean, every part of your life. You, you, I mean, I don't care how, you know, because there's always these people that have this fake appearance about themselves. And I've said this before, Facebook makes it horrible about that. That everything's perfect in that person's family. Their kids never argue. Their job's wonderful. Husband and wife, always great. Always their job. I mean, just everything works out. Listen, that's a lie. Nobody wants to admit, you know what? There's some seasons that I have, I failed myself. I failed my family and I failed my God. But the question is, are we going to allow that failure to dictate where we're going? Are we going to, are we going to stop right now and just say, Lord, how am I going to respond to this from this point on? Or, and more important, how is God responding in this situation? Is he washing his hands of me? Of me? I don't think so, because he would have washed his hands of Peter a long time ago. He didn't let Peter drown, that's for sure, when he was walking on water. See, look at verse 53 and 54. We read it earlier, but I want to zoom in on that. It says, they took Jesus to the high priest's home, where the leading priests, the elders, the teachers of religious law had gathered. Meanwhile, Peter followed him at a distance, and went into the high priest's courtyard. There he sat with the guards, warming himself by the fire. Look at the location of Peter. Not only is he by a fire, which to me is like, oh, I was just kind of thinking about that. He, well, how, isn't that nice? 
He's more concerned about being comfortable than about Jesus' comfort. But not only that, but look at the location. He is, he is following Jesus at a distance. And he goes into the high priest's courtyard, which is right below where Jesus is. Jesus is probably standing close to the edge. And Peter's just right down below where everybody can go. You can hear everything. Be kind of like if I was in an argument with someone. Have you ever wanted to just be a fly on the wall and see what people really think about you? Probably not. I don't know. But you're just kind of sitting there and you're listening. Ooh. Because you want to see what Jesus, you want, Peter's going, I want to know what Jesus is doing here. I want to know what he's saying. I want to know what he's doing. I want to be close to the action, just not too close. See, he's more concerned about his comfort than what's happening to Jesus. He's like a typical sports fan. We've, he follows Jesus when everything's going great. When, when Jesus is feeding the crowd, free food, I'm there. Walking the water, I'm there. Healings, sure. Raising the dead, I'll be there. But then Jesus gets arrested. What happens? I'm out of here. See ya. Why? Because Peter wanted to be with a perceived winner, but then he looks at Jesus and he assumes that he's a failure. So he disconnects himself from Jesus. Just enough. It's kind of like for 20 years, except for last year, the Mariners did nothing and I was like, I'm done, not going to watch a game. But you better believe I checked the score from time to time. I was like, click on okay, Google Mariners, and I'm looking at barely. Okay, the score, ooh, they won. Okay, turn it off really quick. Because I was following the Mariners at a distance. But I refused to care about what really took place. That's exactly what Peter was doing. He believed Jesus was a lost cause. Since Team Jesus was going to the cross, Peter jumped ship. And the sad thing is, Peter knew that Jesus was the Messiah. Who was the one that told Jesus that he, who's the one that, that proclaimed Jesus is Messiah? Peter. And Jesus goes, it wasn't you that were, that, that, that knew that. It was the Father who told you. So Peter was the one who proclaimed that Jesus was Messiah. That's a huge statement. Because everybody, including John the Baptist, said, are you the one that's really here? Are you the one that, that God said? Because tell us plainly. Peter goes, nope, you're the Messiah. But until he saw Jesus losing control. See, he thought the Messiah looks like this, and if it didn't pan out, I'm out of here. We do that with a lot of people. We do that with churches. We do that with pastors. We do that with marriages. We do that with jobs. We do that with everything. At the moment that it feels a little bit shaky, I'm out of here. The reality is, listen to me, anything, I'm talking about everything in life, relationships, jobs, the United States of America, the world, churches, pastors, uh, whatever, fill in the blank. There are, from time to time in your life, where there's going to be some shaky ground. And will you, and even in the kingdom of God, it will seem like things, even in churches, it's very easy. You're going to church, you're following God, and you got your hands with your you got your keys ready because you're ready to leave if, if things get a little too tough. Not physically, okay, in the in the church. I'm just saying, God, it's getting a little too tough. I'm out of here. We're just we're kind of just barely that's what that's humanity. 
The question is, how are we going to respond to those failures? How are we going to respond when there's shaky ground in our life? Because my question is, how many of us are following Jesus from a distance? You don't want to get too close to the action. You just want enough of Jesus to get to heaven. And listen, I get it. I get it. When I was in school, I remember the times when I got C's in some class. I'm like, I passed. Or a D. In college, you know, getting a D in Spanish. Or in calculus. And I got that. I'm like, I mean, those were mercy passes, but I got my report card and I'm going D in calculus. Most people go, I failed. I went, I passed. <laughs> Hallelujah. You see that right next to it? Three credits. I need 120, I think it was 125 credits to, to graduate. That's three. You better believe it. I have no idea what this has to do with my sermon, but I just need it off my chest. It's been on there for 20-something years. I have no idea. Anyway, that's pretty cool. Uh, but, uh, see, we distance ourselves from God because we don't think he knows what's best for us. And the moment that he leads us through some rocky ground, we think, A, God's not there with us. There's no way, there's no way on earth that God would lead me through some rough terrain. What Bible are you reading? That's what I want to talk to my old self when I was in high school when I thought everything was going to go smoothly because I was a Christian. Because those are some, those are some minor things that I was taught for the first couple months. And the moment that I felt that there was things in my life going wrong, I thought, I'm on the wrong path, obviously. Little did I know that Jesus has taken me through some things to get to me where he... See, Jesus, he did all this. How? Why? To get to the point. And the point was, I'm dying on the cross for the, human, for the sins of the world. For God so what? Love the world World is not just a location, it's the people that they're lost. There's the church, and then there's the world. Sinners. He died for that. That's why he had to go through this. If you would have given up on God during this time, you and I would be destined to go to hell. Verse 55, we see that Jesus is led to the high priest's home to do a mock trial. Here in the United States, we presume innocence until proven guilty. But in those days, I'll just move on. Um, but in Jesus' case, they've already determined that he's guilty. The, the trial that you're about to see in this story in the next couple weeks, the next week or two, it's fake. It's a kangaroo court. See, verse 60 and 61, Jesus, the high priest stood up, and aren't you going to answer these charges? What do you have to say for yourself? But Jesus was silent. He made no reply. Why? Because God's calling trumps his comfort. God's calling is the most important thing in your life. Sometimes you have to go through rough times 
If you're accomplishing God's will, that's got to come first. That goes against the American Christianity. It does. I'll admit it. Because if I follow God, he's going to make me feel better. He's going to calm all my fears. He's never, the, uh, you know, who is it that when we stand on solid ground, who is the solid ground? Him. Not the world. Not this, not this planet that we live on. Not our situation. He is the solid ground. So when everything else is shaky, all other ground is sinking sand. Jesus, he doesn't say a word because he knows that God's calling has, and his mission comes first. And then, the second question, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. All three of those statements that he says right there, they would have been very well familiar with what he's saying. The I am statement, of course, for Moses and God is speaking to him from the burning bush. And then Daniel 7, he goes, the Savior coming on the clouds. You know that prophecy, right? Yeah, that's me. Then he goes, hey, you guys know the Psalm 110, that the Messiah is going to be on the right-hand side of God? Yeah, that's me too. So all this mockery, all this beating, all this spitting, all this this horrific thing that's taking place here, the reason why it's taking place, because it's going right into the hands, I mean, in the hands of God going, this is this is my plan. These sinners, they have no idea that they're actually playing into God's hands. They have no idea. They think they're doing God a damage by, by beating him and punching him and putting him on the cross, but they don't even know. That was exactly God's plan from the beginning. Why? Because you matter to him. We matter to God. See, Jesus' pain is our gain. Meanwhile, Peter was in the courtyard below, and the servant girl who worked for the high priest, she noticed that Peter was warming himself, and you were one of those with Jesus of Nazareth, but Peter denied it. I don't know what you're talking about. See, he even put a curse on himself. Let me stop right there as we close this. What can we learn about focus on someone's failure? I mean, are we that sick that we, we take, like, I feel encouraged by seeing someone else fail? Because I've always read this and I felt sad for Peter, but I thought, thank you that that took place. Because I know how God used Peter. Thank God that he didn't say to Peter, you're done. I'm throwing you away. I'm tossing you like yesterday's trash. You're done. Jesus was not done with Peter yet. Here's why we studied this. It's because Peter thought his story was over, but we know, if you read the Bible, his story is not over yet. It's far from over. And that's the last point, is that there's forgiveness on the other side of failure. If you're in a season of failure, or if you are still owned by the failure you did 20 years ago, I've had, there was people in my, over the years, they've said, 
man, I was called to do this, but I have not been able to do it because I made a bad decision 20 years ago. I said, that was 20 years ago. Move forward. They never did. The person went to their grave not doing what God wanted them to do because of some choice they made 20 years ago, maybe more than that. 30 years, 40, I don't know, however long it was. It was so sad. Do not let the failure of your past or right now, your present, dictate where you're going. In fact, there's two verses I want to read and we'll be done. I could have chosen when Peter was fishing and Jesus was, and they had breakfast together. That's a great, that's a great story. But I wanted to read from two verses of Mark 16. In fact, there's one verse the end of Mark is complicated, complicated. Okay, you'll notice a few things about Mark 16. We won't get into it today. But Mark, Mark 16, 8 is probably the very end of the book. Okay? Verse 6 and 7, almost how it ends. But the angel said, don't be alarmed. You were looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He isn't here. He has risen from the dead. Look, this is where they laid his body. Now go and tell his disciples, including Peter. Do you notice that? Some tri- See, okay, wait, 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 let's rewind that for just a minute because everybody's just like, think about it. We would think, eh, tell your disciples, oh, Peter's out there fishing. Who cares about him? The story's over. No, no. Go and tell his disciples, including Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you before he died. Why did Peter get singled out? Because Peter didn't feel like a disciple. So even Jesus, who plays into that role, saying, you know what? He doesn't feel like a disciple. Here's the disciples. Here's Peter. He's singled out. Why? Because even though Peter doesn't feel like a disciple, he is a disciple. Go get Peter. Remind him of who I made him to be. And so as we close, what do you need to do if you are in a season of failure? I wrote down the words of the song that we sing at the very end of the worship, the, the music time. Lord, I need you every hour I need you. And then this, the words that say, where sin runs deep, your grace is more. Your grace is more than enough. So I want to take a moment just to let you be with God as we close and allow him to minister to you. Let's take a moment. Holy Spirit, we give you permission to work on our heart. And there might be someone here, maybe online, you're watching and you feel like a failure. Or let's just say it plain, you are a failure. You failed yourself, you failed your family, you failed your business, you failed your God. But the reality is, that is not the end of your story. Like Peter's story, we are not done yet. God is not through with us yet. So God, would you have your way with us as we move forward from the past and go into the future that you have for us, which the failure does not dictate where we're going, you do. So thank you for the story of Peter, and thank you for what you're doing with us, God. And I pray for healing in our hearts if we need it, Lord God. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. We are having small group Wednesday. We didn't have it last week. Missed you guys. But we're going, the guys are going through the remainder of that book. It's like a new, it's a good time to start right now because it's going a new part of that book. And so you're going to not want to miss it. Amen.